Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics, and today I'm joined by Amy Allison, President of Democracy in Color, a media organization dedicated to race, politics, and the multicultural progressive New American majority. Amy is also the host of the Democracy in Color podcast, the creator of Get Information, a national movement to inspire and engage black women in Georgia and nationwide to elect Stacey Abrams as the nation's first black woman governor in 2018, and the author of the forthcoming book, She the People, which is about women of color in political leadership roles. Thanks for coming on, Amy. I'm so happy to be here. So today, we're going to be discussing race and the Democratic Party, and more specifically, the conclusions found in the Democratic Party autopsy and the recent elections that resulted in a very diverse blue wave. Let's start with the autopsy. Amy, can you give us a basic overview? Democracy in Color published an autopsy really because we had a question. We'd raised the fact, I don't think it was maybe 2014 in our first study, of the fact that the Democratic Party is really hiring mostly 97% firms with no person of color in leadership for their political consulting. And we're talking about billions of dollars. And in the years since, particularly after the election of Donald Trump, we know that the importance of having the party infrastructure, that's like everything from the committees like the DNC, as well as state parties, be able to invest properly in engaging voters of color. Because basically, new American majority, multiracial electorate, as you were mentioning in the intro, that is the electoral majority. So if we, if our people go to the polls, we win. It's that simple. And what we found out is uh, in the $1.8 billion that was raised and spent uh, for the Hillary campaign and the Democrats uh, in 2016, very, very little of uh, that money was dedicated talking to Uh, knocking on the doors of and otherwise engaging voters of color who are the most loyal core of the Democratic Party base. So the autopsy has found that what happened in 2016, millions of dollars were spent on TV ads. And those ads, if you talk about Clinton, and if you live in a state where those those ads appear, I live in California, so we didn't have the political ads, but high-priced consultants, majority white, who create TV commercials aimed at trying to get convinced white swing voters to vote for Clinton. And the autopsy showed that priorities in terms of like spending was like TV ads over paying people on the ground to actually go and organize in the communities. And the the autopsy shows that that was why Clinton lost in some of the key states. It's really great to hear that as your analysis. When I first saw that there was a Democratic Party autopsy, I was honestly very nervous. We've seen a lot of bad takes post-election kind of unofficial autopsies, but the one that's gained the most traction is that Trump won because of his popularity with the white working class, where supposedly economically anxious white people were drawn to Trump's quote-unquote populism. I think that this is largely a way for white elites to deflect from race and try to make Trump's victory about class, which is ridiculous since you can't have the white working class without the white. In reality, studies have proven that Trump supporters were primarily motivated by cultural values, particularly their views on race and immigration which is very racialized. So I was pleasantly surprised to see the autopsy understand that the Democratic Party failed largely because of its failure to reach out to and mobilize people of color, not white people. 
Just a couple days ago in Virginia and throughout the country, we saw people of color give progressive Democrats major victories. Some of these candidates being people of color, queer people, queer people of color, refugees. Do you think the Democratic Party will learn its lesson about race and marginalized identity before the 2018 midterms? I hope they learn. I mean, we're talking about 242 years of a political system that's built upon very racist assumptions. And some people have the mistaken impression once we elected the first black president, um, Barack Obama, that we were in some kind of post-race period. The truth of the matter is, even on the Democrat side, and 47% of the base of the Democratic Party are people of color, as a just a central note to that, black women are the highest turnout in Virginia a couple of days ago, as well as nationally, the highest turnout of any race or gender. We're critical. You, you, you look at the strategic error that the Clinton campaign made, which was trying to convince white women to be the base. The white women have been, the majority of white women have been voting Republican for about 40 years. So there's some kind of blindness in the fact that people who sit on these uh, millions and millions of dollars for, and make decisions about what voters matter. I think what happened in, in Virginia with these amazing, remarkable candidates gives us a basic lesson, which is if you put out candidates who are powerfully advocating for our set of values, that's like criminal justice reform and, and the bail and the and the policing and, and um, education and health care, which is a critical issue, and immigrant rights, and the, all of those reflect the values of the new American majority. And if you try to continue to get go for these swing voters and convince people who voted for Trump to vote for Democrats, it's a losing proposition. It's not only doesn't make any sense you know, morally, but it's also mathematically doesn't make any sense. So I think you're right. I think, I think at the end of the day, what Virginia and the elections in Georgia and other places that just happened this week demonstrated is we need the right candidates and we need to invest. And I just want to say a note about Virginia. In Virginia, you had Nordham, the, the, the guy who's uh, uh, now the governor. He was a lieutenant governor. Now he's the governor of Virginia. A few days before uh, the election, he came out against sanctuary cities, which is absolutely antithetical to what the new American majority wants um, and supports. And in fact, it flies in the face of the Latinos who are strong Democrats in that state. He was trying, I guess, to appeal, like Trump does, to this racist notion that white people are the ones that, that, that matter. But the thing is, that old notion of using identity politics from or dog whistle racism, that is not how to win. And the reason that he won as a Democrat in Virginia was because there's this amazing set of organizations. Two well named is the, the Virginia New Majority, run by this fantastic political strategist named Tram Nguyen, Vietnamese American woman who organization has been for years, and is particularly in this, this last period identifying and talking to and getting voters of color throughout the state to the polls. And the other one is called Black Pack, where they spent a million dollars with people on the ground to talk to black voters in that state. Black voters are 37% of Virginia's electorate. That's why the Democrats won up and down ballot. It's that. It wasn't that they were trying to appeal in a racist way to white working class. Yeah, absolutely. I was also very disappointed by Ralph Northam's decision to come out against sanctuary cities, and I think it's indicative of a greater problem within the Democratic Party. I've personally become very disenchanted with the Democratic Party, and I know that's the case with a lot of people of color. Leaders like Bernie Sanders have really been bashing marginalized folks and saying that our rights, our identities aren't, quote, 
bread and butter issues that mean so much to ordinary Americans. That's a really disgusting and offensive thing to say, and it shows how Bernie and so many Democrats see white people as the norm and always the most important. I've started wondering if he becomes the nominee in 2020, if I'd even vote for him, which is something I never thought I'd be saying a year ago when I supported him in the primaries. Have you dealt with this conflict at all? I totally have. I mean, one of the challenges that we have working uh, because Democracy in Color is not a party mechanism. We're independent of party, and part of what we are trying to do is to force the party apparatus, the one that you're just talking about, where they spend money on white swing voters to the detriment of really talking to the base. Bernie Sanders and Tom Perez did this listening tour this year, and they went to majority white states when they should have been doing a listening tour through the South and Southwest, the states that are already the majority, people of color or near majority, states like uh, Nevada and uh, Texas and Georgia and Florida. Those are the new swing states that um, are on the precipice and they, of becoming blue if the party apparatus actually prioritized and invested in voters of color. And, you know, having these kind of milquetoast candidates who try to play to some invisible middle when Trump, the racist in chief, is attacking people of color as well as LGBTQ people as well as what I mean it just goes on and on there's no reason that we should have a party that accepts candidates who are not talking about and embracing new kind of identity politic you know so our issues and who we are matter and I think just like you I think a lot of people are really really sick of the Democratic Party ignoring those who are the keys to victory, to their own detriment, as we could see in 2016. And by the way, on the governor's mansion, the, the Republicans still control the vast majority. So the good news, because I don't want to just complain, the good news is we have this real opportunity to elect some fantastic gubernatorial candidates. Stacey Abrams in Georgia is a black woman who is the House Minority Leader in the state, a progressive, fantastic, young, and just amazing leader. And she has 30 people on the ground right now identifying and targeting young voters and people of color who need to be part of the democratic process in that state. Clinton lost Georgia by just over 200,000 votes and Georgia would not have to win a single additional white voter in order for her to win and for the state to turn blue. And imagine if Georgia is blue, then um, so much more becomes possible in 2020. And it's the same uh, with Andrew Gillum, who's running for governor in Florida, and uh, with David Garcia, who's running for governor in Arizona. We have some really great candidates. It's the same with presidential. Our choice doesn't have to be Bernie or someone else. We have Kamala Harris and Cory Booker among a crop of pretty interesting and exciting potential candidates. So we just have to keep doing more of what, we're, what we did this week in, in Virginia um, in order to put ourselves in a position to actually win with our candidate, not a milquetoast candidate, but one of our uh, strong uh, progressive champions. So you mentioned pushing the establishment to the left and pushing them to care more about people of color and marginalized bodies. How much faith do you think we should put into establishment democratic institutions like the DNC and the DSCC versus outsider groups? I've been gravitating towards outsider groups, especially ones that focus on supporting marginalized candidates. But I want to get your take. I don't think the solution is in putting our just blind faith in the institutions, particularly when they're making bad decisions about which voters matter, which candidates matter, where to spend the money, etc. 
But I do think that independent groups that got Lumumba elected, that got the first transgender woman of color, I think it was up in, in, in Minnesota, elected in New Jersey, the first Sikh mayor in Hoboken, all of these amazing candidates, a lot of them were not blessed by the party infrastructure. These gatekeepers and the consultants and all the people who hold office typically at the, both the county and the state and the national level, they pick and endorse and fund candidates that look like them. And it mostly doesn't include the new American majority. But what I can say is we have a very exciting time where I guess it took Trump to be in office, but like the movements, the immigrant rights movement and the Muslim rights movement and the movement for police accountability, all of these movements have produced these phenomenal leaders. And they've also given movements a ground game to get people elected. And if you look at, let's say, the first black woman to be Charlotte, to be mayor in Charlotte's and other places, these are candidates who have been lifted up, funded, and gotten the steam from movements on the ground, which were not typically Democratic Party insiders. So that gives us a lot of hope. And I actually think if we figure out how to put our energy and faith in finding movement leaders to put in office, and also that we have movement and on-the-ground organizations that can talk to voters, uh, it's a powerful combination. So back when Democrats released their better deal, you criticized it for lacking anything about civil rights. That really bothered me too. What platform do you think that Democrats should run on in the future, and how much should they put civil rights at the forefront during the campaign? I mean, civil rights, racial justice, I mean, the better deal didn't talk about the intersection between race and economic equality. That's why I thought it was both short-sighted and out of touch for the better deal to focus only on economic equality when we know that economic equality and race, those two things are very, very tightly related because you can have a house and a mortgage in a neighborhood, but if someone burns a cross on your front lawn, all of a sudden your opportunities and your possibilities as a person are limited. So I think study after study have shown race is a big determinant of our educational and, and our other kinds of success. So we deserve a party that really, for once and for all, addresses racism that's been baked into every system. This is especially poignant now because Trump is president. If he, Trump is president, white supremacists feel like they have their guy in office, and this is the time. And I'm not going to tolerate any weak, mealy-mouthed response to the kind of racism Trump has opened the door to be exposed and, and to be coddled by. We already had a problem, and people of color already knew there was a problem with racism because black men and brown men were being shot on the street on a regular basis. And so we were clear that the system under uh, President Barack Obama and under Trump, there's some there's so many problems with the system. And this is where we, we say politically, we have a, a big opportunity to do something. And it should be done at, at, at every level. So you mentioned how Donald Trump has mobilized and made white supremacists feel more comfortable. How much do you think Trump is reflective of the Republican Party? In my eyes, he's really just a product of really half a century of the GOP's racialized campaign strategy, racist platform. Do you think that he's an aberration? He's a continuation? So much of the Republican, particularly now, reason for being and value that they, they claim to offer voters is based on a racist notion of the other, they create the enemy, uh, the black man as a criminal or immigrant as the criminal. So that is really 
central to the policy platform of the Republicans. And the Republicans is largely, mostly white party. But I want to tell the truth about the Democrats too. 20, maybe 15 years ago, Bill Clinton, when he was running as the Democratic uh, candidate for president, attacked Sister Soldier, who's a black woman hip-hop artist. And the way that he denigrated her really reflected the racism of those in the Democratic Party as well. So I want to tell you the truth about that, that we have that problem as well, that it's not enough to just point the finger over at the Republicans. Um, it's necessary but not sufficient. Through implicit and explicit, including or shutting down candidates, including or shutting down voters, including or shutting down our policies and our agenda as new American majority progressives that need to be dealt with within the party. You know, you, you asked earlier about being sick of the Democratic Party, and I was a speaker at the Women's Convention, which was organized by Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez and Linda Sarsour, who were the co-chairs of the Women's March. And I was talking about women of color and voters and these issues, and there were several women who stood up in my session and said, I'm waiting for the Lemonade Party because I can't, in good faith, support this. But I think instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we have to recognize and organize in a different kind of way. Using the party is one vehicle, but movements and organizing on the street and talking to our people and getting them to the polls, that's another thing. And I believe we should be looking at power and, and being elected in political office is actually an expression of the kind of power that we could do a lot of good with. I'm glad you brought up Bill Clinton and the so-called New Democrats because I think there are a lot of why we're in the place we are today. Democrats shifting to the right and under Bill Clinton, infinitely worsening the issue of hyper-incarceration. Today, in large part because of this, millions of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people of color are unable to vote. One of the big things that's gone unnoticed about the Virginia elections is the impact of the formerly incarcerated vote. The incumbent Democratic governor restored the voting rights of formerly incarcerated people, and they really came out to vote for Ralph Northam. In my eyes, voting rights should be the top priority of Democrats, since our democracy can't function if people can't vote. How do you think Democrats should prioritize voting rights? You're so right. I'm so glad you brought that up, because that's kind of an X factor. A lot of people don't know that formerly incarcerated people who their rights were restored under the Democratic-controlled Virginia State House. That's a population who we can organize, and but I think it's very important, particularly because mass incarceration has swept up so many black and brown people into its net. And in some states, people who have been in the system either don't have the rights, the exercise of part of the democracy, those rights were taken from them, or alternatively, they don't know that they have the rights. What I would love is for every Democrat to study the success of Virginia and how it is that we have the second elected Democratic mayor and look at the factors, including the formerly incarcerated. So we have a situation where in a place like Georgia, Brian Kemp, who's the secretary of state, has made it his personal evil mission to like take as many voters off the rolls as possible. There's an organization called the New Georgia Project who registers voters of color. Um, there's 1.2 unregistered voters of color in the state. And he just removed over 500,000 voters from the rolls last month. The guy's psycho. We're like playing an arms race. We're in an arms race. The Democrats need to figure out where are all the areas where we can expand the electorate, strengthen democracy, and give people an opportunity to uh, play their role as citizens where they can vote. 
and the formerly incarcerated population, it's not just that that's a population of voters that can be can organize themselves and stand for candidates they believe in. It's that it's the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do for the Democrats. So I think you're right. I think we need to put much more focus um, on formerly incarcerated and just in general expanding voting rights for people. Yeah, absolutely. Shifting a little bit to a different issue that the autopsy addressed, how do you think that Democrats should deal with the issue of corporate power? The autopsy addresses it as a big reason as to why the base thinks the party is corrupt and doesn't represent them, but Democrats have had a really tough time matching their fundraising with Republicans without big donors. What do you think the right path to take is here? Well, if there's something historic, there was a lot of historic things about 2016, but Bernie Sanders ran a powerful primary challenge as a Democrat in a national race with small dollar donors. And that really showed that we actually have, we already have in this country, the capacity to be able to do it because Bernie Sanders showed that it could happen. I think the Democrats have been too dependent on corporate power and it corrupts our democracy no matter what party somebody's in. But I also think that we, we need to, at every level of electoral politics, be expanding the number of people who invest in particular candidates and, a, and more importantly, a, a vision of our country and our communities. There's a um, woman who's running for state assembly in Bay Area named Javanka Beckles. Uh, she's running in the East Bay, that's Berkeley and Oakland. And she's not taking corporate dollars. That's part of her message and part of her values. And so you have this African-American, lesbian, progressive, says, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take corporate dollars. And so she organizes her campaign around that. Well, we need Javanka Beckel's level of commitment to democracy and not getting swept up in these, you know, the corruption of corporate dollars and politics. We need them all over the place at every level of government. Looking to the 2018 midterms, how do you think Virginia and the blue wave might change the strategy of Republicans? The Republican candidate for governor, Ed Gillespie, run an incredibly racist campaign. Will Republicans see his failure as a reason to move to the right, become more racist and Trumpian? I was just on a news panel with a Republican advisor strategist who used to work for Reagan and Bush in the press corps. Fresh off of this news panel, heard that from the Republican perspective, there's pros and cons of moving closer to and away from Trump. Look at Gillespie, who was running as a Republican gubernatorial candidate in Virginia. He didn't necessarily embrace Trump. He tried to distance himself from Trump, but he was still racist, and he was still using the same playbook that Trump had used. So it's like he wasn't really that different. And in fact, this Republican strategist said this morning, you know, you know, I think the best thing is to get things done. Like he's like, we just need to demonstrate we can govern. That was more the question for him. So the Republicans have the majority of the state houses. I think believe it is 37. It's an enormous uh, majority. And they also have Congress and the presidency, and they can't get a single thing done. They didn't get the wall done. They didn't, weren't able to repeal uh, Obamacare. They couldn't ban Muslims. They couldn't do the things that they had promised, that rabid racist base that they're uh, appealing to. And so for him, he's like, we just got to get tax reform done. Well, of course, amongst the Republicans, there's not a lot of agreement because they would do things like mess with the tax deduction for people who own homes, your mortgage tax deduction and other things they would give the richest people a, a huge tax break. So it's like, his thing is, it's less of a question of what to do about Trump, although he said if you get too close and Trump will tweet something out, you'll get singed. 
or if you're if you distance yourself. But what I think is really interesting is the Republicans implode. Look at Roy Moore, right, who's running for Senate in, in Alabama. It's now come out that he, when he was in his 30s, was trying to date a 14-year-old, trying to have, I just, what a, what a creep, what a horrible person. And if that takes him down, as well as an unprecedented number of Congress, Republican Congress members who are announcing they're not running for re-election and stepping away from the whole political process, I think there's I think there's opportunities there. So regarding Roy Moore, do you think the fact that he's now known to be a sexual predator will actually take him down in Alabama? Because we saw Republicans still overwhelmingly support Trump in the election and still overwhelmingly support him, despite him being a self-admitted sexual predator. And in Alabama, Trump won by, I believe, almost 28 points. Like, does this really make a difference even if some senators are saying that if, and emphasis on if, these allegations are true, that Roy Moore should drop out? I mean, they can't even admit that this is true. I'm looking at the way that uh, Kevin Spacey, after his decades of uh, a successful Hollywood career, was taken down in a matter of two weeks. How Bill Cosby was taken down after years of, of doing his mis, you know his bad deeds and activity and I you know and then I look at the um, look at the difference in the way that Trump's actions were justified I don't know because I just you know I saw on Fox um, news yesterday that uh, Hannity was had a had a panel they were justifying having sex with children they were justifying it as a way to defend Roy I mean what the heck so while they're imploding while they're, they don't have a moral center and they aren't able to govern. While all that is happening, we just, we can only uphold the standards of decency in our country and we can only provide, you know, organize against it. For those who would vote for someone who has done that, I only want to say I believe there are more decent people than bad people in this country. <laughs> there's just, there's more good people. And those good people have to vote. And for the morally bankrupt uh, people who would justify that behavior, uh, both of uh, Trump's and Senate candidate or anybody else, all I can say is we have to take the reins and we have to set the standard in this country. So during the Alabama Senate primary, some Democrats were actually hoping Roy Moore would win, thinking that having Democrat Doug Jones go against the most extreme candidate in the general election would give Democrats the best chance at winning. And we have sort of seen this happen before. For example, in 2012, Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill purposely worked to ensure that the furthest right candidate won the Republican primary so that she had a better chance of winning over moderates, and that happened. But I'm not sure that's a winning strategy anymore. I mean, that's why a lot of Democrats wanted Trump to win the Republican nomination, and look where we are now. And prior to news breaking that Roy Moore is a sexual predator, Roy Moore was winning in the polls with a solid majority of the vote. Do you think Democrats should hope that in 2018 Republicans nominate far-right candidates in the face of more moderate Republicans like Bob Corker and Jeff Flake refuse, uh, choosing to retire? It is a mistake strategically for Democrats to try to manage the political behavior of Republicans by trying to put up the worst case. Because what's happened is Trump, we've seen what a year of Trump is. And at every turn, 
he's offensive, he's attacking, he's unstable. He's really the definition of like the worst person <laughs> to, to run. And, and he's lowered the bar so significantly. I don't think it's a winning strategy. I'd much rather see these Democrats who are trying to manage Republicans, I'd much rather see them looking at our own base and holding up a vision that we actually can believe in and supporting candidates that we can we we feel invested in that we can write a check to that we can go uh, knock on doors for that that elevate us don't just tell us don't just present the worst or try to engineer it so that the worst candidate is available for the other side because we've already seen the worst has already happened i think it's a failed strategy i think we got to focus on ourselves and the diversity of our, our own base and have some faith that our voters are gonna, are gonna see it through. So I'd like to talk about your work. Can you tell us how you got started in politics? Well, it's almost Veterans Day, so I will tell you that as a 17-year-old high school student, I was trying to figure out a way to afford college because I come from a big family, and didn't have a lot of money. And the recruiter that was on campus convinced me to join the Army. And I joined the Army um, with all these promises of um, benefits. And um, I was in the Army Reserves for almost six years. And my experience working in a veterans hospital at Palo, in Palo Alto and shooting and practicing with human-shaped targets and um, all of that kind of crystallized when the Persian Gulf War happened. And that was the beginning of the birth of my politics, where I started realizing that I'm just one person, but my, my actions and my responsibility um, extends not only to people in my country, but people all over the world. And I really changed. Um, and I uh, became an outspoken anti-war person, which is very difficult to do while you're in the military. And I applied and eventually received an honorable discharge as a conscientious objector. And so on Veterans Day, um, I always say, you know, we honor people who served their country, but there are so many ways to serve. If you run for office, you're serving. If you, you know, working in a classroom, you're serving the community, you're, you know, cleaning up the environment, you're serving the community. So um, that's the basis of my, of my politics. And since I, uh, after I got out of, um, after I got out of uh, the military, I was a teacher and then uh, ran for local office in Oakland, a city council, and I didn't get the seat, but um, through the media and organizing that I did, I ended up, um, hosting KPFA, which is the Pacifica um, station morning show. So I talked about politics and things like that. And then um, eventually uh, reconnected with college friends who'd started a political organization, Democracy in Color, um, that I'm in now. And you know what's really funny? In college, the same multiracial progressive activism that fought for workers' rights and for immigrant rights and um, against police brutality in my day, it was Rodney King. Those are the same, I'm doing the exact same thing that I did as a college student, except I'm doing it for real. I'm trying to get, <laughs> I, want, I believe in, and we're pushing this politics that is loving and fierce and uh, transformational. So that's my story. So how did Democracy in Color develop into what it is today? Democracy in Color is two years old, but our organization broadly is over a decade old. It started out as uh, something called Vote Hope, which was a independent funding effort to help Senator Barack Obama um, get through the primary. And for a while, there wasn't any um, way for somebody who had some money and had already maxed out uh, supporting Barack Obama. There was no place to 
continue to, to financially back his campaign. And so we created this political action committee whose goal was to do a 10 state, $10 million uh, voter of color outreach in swing states like Ohio. And um, the, the, um, the result was very, very successful. And since then it became PAC plus and then democracy and color. And our mission now is not just supporting candidates, but also um, writing and doing media. I have a new uh, television show and I have a podcast called Democracy in Color. So the idea is to get our voices elevated and out there um, because we, we are so critical to the future of the country. Um, so it's, not, it's, it's, it's politics with a broad sense of influencing the zeitgeist and how people think about what politics is and, and encouraging conversations amongst ourselves about um, what's possible and who are our leaders. Could you tell us about Get Information and your efforts to elect Stacey Abrams? I launched Get Information a few months back. This is a national call for Black women, who I mentioned were the highest vote turnout core of the Democratic Party, to get behind Stacey Abrams and help her become the first Black woman governor in our 242-year history. You know, it's a deep belief that Black women both, uh, they, they were critical to Barack Obama's uh, success, but never were um, elevated as that, you know, as voters and as donors and as volunteers. And so this is our chance to get one, a, a black woman in office. And so, uh, we, we made the call and we sent, I think it was like 42,000 in the first three months, um, three, excuse me, three days, um, to her campaign. What I didn't realize was I called for get to get information, kind of like the Beyonce get information that was so popular last year, women of all colors, and some men responded. And I think that uh, the opportunity to get information me is really another call for the new American majority to get behind a fantastic candidate. So if you haven't checked out Stacey Abrams, she's really changing the game in the South. I mean, the South as a progressive, <clears throat> as a progressive bastion, that's, it's amazing. So I'm very excited about, uh, very excited about get information and about Stacey Abrams. So lastly, could you tell us about your upcoming book? Yes, my book coming out next year is called She the People. The New Politics of Women of Color. And She the People is a call for women of color to come fully into their fierce and loving leadership and collective power. Women of color as a group are incredible in terms of organizers, but they are severely underrepresented. So women of color are 19% of the population, almost 20% of the population, and only 4% of elected, uh, in elected officials uh, up and down ballot. And that's got to change, particularly because uh, women of color are often leaders in the community. They understand what democracy looks like from the ground up. And when they get in office, they can make fantastic elected officials. But there is so many barriers, um, structural barriers. And so the book is about those barriers, about how to overcome it, and how women of color embody a kind of intersectional, complex and loving politic that we need, that I believe will save our country uh, from the likes of Trump. So yeah, that's coming out end of next year. Great. Thank you for sharing that. So where can folks find your work online? I am at democracyandcolor.com. And I'm Amy, I'm at Amy Allison on Twitter. Okay, great. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at millennialpolitics.co. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.